Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Men Wanted. The 21st century is an age of unprecedented comfort and ease, and if you don't remain alert and watchful, you can very easily be lulled into a spiritual slumber. Most of us want Jesus to somehow fit comfortably into the context of our cushy 9-to-5 job, suburban house, pretty wife, and 2.5 kids. But the call of the gospel is to lose your life, abandon all, and follow him anywhere he goes, even if that is a dark and lonely cave. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Men Wanted. Not exactly sure if this is the best title or not. I'm famous for giving man messages. And if you asked me, is this another one of your man messages, Eric? I'm not sure. Uh, it has a manly tone to it, there's no doubt, but all my messages have that. So I guess in that uh, classification, all my messages are manly messages. But some messages, and I have a high percentage of my messages that deal straight with the issues of manhood. I am a big fan of men being men in the church. And I really do believe that if men are men in the church, they're men in their relationships with God, they're men in their uh, marriages, they're men in their families, you know what? Most of the things in the body of Christ that are porous and falling apart and weak right now would immediately be fixed. And so as a result, I do hit at that jugular quite a bit. However, this is a little different There's a reason why I have this title, and you'll see it in the very first quote that I give. This quote is taken from a book called Quit You Like Men, written in, I think, 1940, 1944, somewhere in there. Quit You Like Men. Doesn't that sound like a fascinating book to read? I've actually never read it. I just have a quote from it. (laughs) The guy, I guess, that wrote it is Carl Hopkins Elmore, Quit You Like Men, oh, 1944. So this is the statement. I was going to actually just give the quote from Sir Ernest Shackleton. But instead, I really liked the context that this guy created for it. And it gives sort of a sense of history. When someone who wrote in 1944 about this same quote is commenting on it, and it's from a book called Quit You Like Men. That's why I liked it. It was just like, okay, any book called that, you know, needs to be quoted from. Sir Ernest Shackleton, when he was about to set out on one of his expeditions, printed a statement in the papers to this effect. By the way, if you aren't familiar with Sir Ernest Shackleton, he was the great explorer. He, he was the one that desired to traverse all of South, the South Pole. And his desires were so impossible. The things that he set out to do were impossible in his time period. And as a result, he was sort of a symbol of manliness in his generation. So here's what the advertisement said that was released from Sir Uh, Ernest Shackleton. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the South Pole. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. How would someone respond to that? Isn't that interesting? Now, some of you have probably heard this because this is just one of those stories that has floated around for the past oh, I don't know, 50 to 60 years especially. There were books written about it. There was like the top 100 advertisements ever. It was a book written in the mid-1900s, and this was the number one advertisement ever released. Because of the response to it, it is estimated that 5,000 men and three women responded to this little (laughs) advertisement. In speaking of it afterwards, speaking of that particular advertisement, in speaking of it afterward, he said... That so overwhelming was the response to his appeal that it seemed as though all the men of Great Britain were determined to accompany him. I have a hunch that the men of Great Britain were very different back then than they are now. 
I would guess that if such a notice was released in America, now, you have to realize, the sense of adventure still courses through the men that are alive on earth today. However, there has been something that has begun to creep in, a a self-preserving mindset that basically we would rather take our risks in the video game world than we would in the South Pole. Or we'd rather take our risks watching a movie and someone else actually hazarding their life, and we can live vicariously through it. Remember what the title of this message is? Men Want It. You see, I don't really care a whit if you go to the South Pole. I do care a lot of if you heed the hazardous call of Jesus Christ. And that's what this message is about. It's about the hazardous call. And I'm going to say men wanted. However, it's, as we all know, men and women wanted. You know, the church today mainly appeals to feminine. Feminine sensibilities. In other words, it has a tendency to be orchestrated in such a way where men feel very unused. Men feel like they're awkward. If false doctrine begins to float around... Men have a tendency to want to shoot it down. That doesn't match with the word of God, but men aren't allowed to do that anymore. That is unsavory behavior. In other words, we just love each other. We don't show condemnation and we don't judge things. And so as a result, the men who are built to fix things. If you're in a boat, by the way, and it's sinking and water is filling it up, you know what a man does? He doesn't hug the boat. He looks and he problem solves and he figures there's a hole in this boat. However, the rest of the church says, no, we don't fix holes though. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We hug holes. (laughs) Men are built to fix things. And every marriage conference you go to, you will hear that, and that will be said almost with a wry smile and a chuckle like, oh, those men. I'm here to say that in marriage, it's very true that men, when they try and fix their wives, create more problems. So there is a truth of saying, men, when you are in a marriage relationship, you need to recognize, you need to get into their skin and walk a mile in their shoes. You need to understand the world from their vantage point so you can better fix the problem. Don't try and fix it as if they're a man, okay? So that goes without saying. But men fix problems, and we should not be ashamed of that fact as men. We have problems in the world today, and guess who's built to go out and fix them? We are! But no one is telling us that anymore. We're ashamed of the way we're built. Men wanted for hazardous journey. C.T. Studd. Boy, can you think of a better manly name than that? I mean, that has to be the greatest name possibly ever given to a man. I'm dead serious. I love that name. Uh, my, the students gave me, I don't know which group it was, one of the graduating classes gave me, because I have a story in my past. I got stuck with Eric Ludi as my name. And it just doesn't have that manly flair to it that C.T. Studd does. And so I remember in college, this girl came up to me as a Japanese foreign exchange student, and uh, I told her my name, and my name's Eric Ludi, and she started laughing. I was like, excuse me? Um, what's so funny? And she goes, in Japan, Ludi me nerd. I said, well, in America, it means stud. (laughs) And so this one graduating class gave me a plaque for my door, which, by the way, I never put up. Uh, E.W. Stud uh, is what it said. So 
If you ever see that on my door, you know I'm probably feeling a little insecure about my name. Uh, <laughs> C.T. Studd said, last June at the mouth of the Congo, there awaited a thousand prospectors, traders, merchants, and gold seekers waiting to rush into these regions as soon as the government opened the door to them. For rumor declared that there is an abundance of gold. If such men hear so loudly the call of gold and obey it, can it be the ears of Christ's soldiers are deaf to the call of God and the cries of the dying souls of men? Are gamblers for gold so many and gamblers for God so few? You know what it takes to go after gold? You have to count the cost. You go to the Congo, you know in the Congo, the diseases that run rampant in the Congo, most white men die within three days. Their immune systems can't even handle it. However, there's gold there. What do men risk to go after gold? They'll risk everything, and many of them died going after it. If such men hear so loudly the call of gold and obey it, can it be that the ears of Christ's soldiers are deaf to the call of God? And the cries of the dying souls of men. Are gamblers for gold so many and gamblers for God so few? Some of you could say, well, gold is gold. It could change your world. It could change your life. You could live in luxury. I mean, that's worth risking life for. Have you never been acquainted with God? Have you never heard the gospel? Have you never understood the life transformation and eternal inheritance in the saints that the saints possess in Christ? Has no one ever told you this? Gold is nothing. It passes away. God is eternal. What are you investing in? Where are the gamblers for God? Where are the ones that are willing to take everything they have and shove it onto the table and say, I take my hand, known as God, and I'll play that. I'm putting everything, all stock, on the table in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm in. Well, do you know that that could cost you everything? Do you know what's happened to Christians throughout the ages? I mean, they were brutally uh, killed. They were tortured. I mean, they were thrown in prisons. Do you understand this? Yes, I understand it. But do you know what I'm going after? The reward far outweighs any cost that I could ever need to pay in this lifetime. I remember Joshua Giovanello. The Waldensians were a, a group of Christians that lived in the Italian Alps during the Dark Ages. And Joshua Giovanello, his wife and son, had been brutally killed because of their stance for the gospel, and they would not recant. And that was their attempt at getting at him because he was a great leader among the Waldensians. And so by torturing his wife and kid and absolutely desecrating their memory to the best way they could, they wanted to threaten him. And they said that it will be ten times worse for him when they catch him. Recant, Joshua. Recant of all this heresy that you're speaking about this Jesus, this cross, this gospel. And Joshua Giovanello's response was, 10,000 deaths of such a kind would be too few to express my love for my Jesus. Most of us are struggling with giving up one life. Joshua Giovanello recognized the true bounty of knowing Jesus Christ. And he says, 10,000 deaths of such a torturous kind would be too few. 10,000? What are you willing to do with your one? You have one life to live. You have one life to give. What are you willing to do for? Do you see the benefit of Jesus Christ? Do you understand who he is? 
men wanted for hazardous journey. The invitation to the caves. Let's go back a few thousand years. And we're in the time of David. David has been anointed king. We could call it the renegade anointing because there was a king already on the throne. This is a coup attempt on Israel. God literally snubs his existing king, rejects him, and goes and finds a little boy, the eighth son of Jesse, pours a ram's horn of oil upon his head and says, and deigns him king of Israel. However, no one even recognizes that he's king. You know that even David, David's dad, sent him back to work with the sheep? Uh, Do you send out a king to work with the sheep? In other words, there's probably a little thought that Samuel the prophet was a little cuckoo. You've got to be kidding me. The eighth son, this is a little boy. What's God thinking? The nation of Israel didn't recognize God's selection. And what this led to is a season of hiding. Remember, David comes out and kills Goliath, which, by the way, is an amazing story. However, it didn't end up working too well for David in the long run because Saul has now been awakened because the prophet Samuel said that God had chosen a better man. And Saul begins to awaken that even though it's preposterous that the better man could possibly be this little boy named David, Saul begins to realize that's the threat to his throne. So Saul, in a matter of around 10 to 11 years, launches out on 21 assassination attempts on this little boy. Could you imagine being a young man? Your family is probably not even really in agreement with this whole king anointing thing. And the king of Israel and all the governmental forces, the entire military of Israel is set to destroy you. And you're just a young boy. How you feeling right now? Yeah, doesn't sound like the best life, does it? This is the life of Jesus. You know that when we come to serve Jesus, we are literally joining up with the David of our generation. It's a season of persecution. It's a season of hiding. The prince of the power of the air, the powers of this earth, want our king dead. Yet who's the rightful king of this world? Who's the rightful king? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. It's a fact. And yet, this world is not wanting to recognize it. And they, in fact, want us to think that our king didn't win. That our king isn't all that. They spend all their time criticizing him. Who's willing to leave hearth and home, to leave everything that's comfortable, and join him where he's at? David lived in a cave, in hiding. A cave. And you know that if you side with David, you're siding against all the military force of Israel? You know that if you side with David, you're the hunted and despised in Israel? Who in the right mind would ever do that? Who in the right mind would ever join David in the cave? Think about it. Think about it. You have a posh, nice feather pillow in the palace with Saul. Or you could have a rock for your pillow if you serve with David. Which one are you going after? The comforts of this world or to serve in the hazardous journey alongside of your king? The invitation to the cave. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dulam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And every one that was in distress and every one that was in debt and every one that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with them about 400 men. Let's look at this quick list. There's a certain list of those that actually gave up everything and followed. Listen to this. And everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented 
Distressed, indebted, and discontented. You know when we're happy? When we're comfortable in life? When things are easy? We're not about to go to the cave. Who goes to the cave? The ones that recognize there's more to this life. The ones that are uncomfortable and at ill ease with the the way that their life is going. I need something more. There's something more to this life. Those that begin to recognize the eternal damnation that is hanging over their soul, that they have a debt that they cannot pay. Who wants to go to the cave? Those that need a rescuer. That's who. Those that need a new life. That's who. Who in the right mind wants to go to a cave? So here's the Cave of Adullam invitation. So this is the advertisement that David could put out in the, like the Judean Gazette. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the Cave of Adullam. They will be hunted, despised, and in constant danger. There will be no pay, no plumbing, and no pillow. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. They will be outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Rejection from society, certain. But they will share in the immense glories of David's kingdom when he gains his rightful throne. What are you willing to give up to throw your hat in with David? What are you willing? As we go through this, I tell you what, one of the greatest things in all of history, as far as stories in all of history, is David and his mighty men, as far as I'm concerned. And there is a yearning inside of me. And it must have been the same yearning that those men in Great Britain had when they heard about the expedition to cross the South Pole. It's like, I want to be one of David's mighties. Well, do you recognize, Eric, that that would mean you're hated and despised and you're hunted? You're outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed? Do you recognize that that's what it would mean? I do. And I want it. I really do want to be with David. I do. Well, let's translate that 2,000 years later. Jesus Christ has given us an invitation. He's given us an invitation. I tell you what, you think this is challenging. Try following Jesus Christ. The invitation to the cross. Uh, You see, a cave is not that comfortable. A cross, even more uncomfortable. Crosses come with nails, pain. They empty you of your blood. They put every bone in your body out of joints. And and we're going to say, sign me up. Who's going to sign up for that? No one in their right mind. You see, if we just look at this in the natural realm, none of us is going to sign up to follow Jesus Christ. The invitation to the cross, no thank you. No thank you. No, I'm interested in my comforts. I'm not interested in that. Why would those of us in this room accept that invitation? You see, there's something more that motivates us. It's not just a gibbet or a couple pieces of wood uh, nailed together, tied together. It's not just the nails that attract us. like, oh, if I could just have nails in my flesh. No, that isn't why we go. We are not attracted to the blood and the gore of the cross. That isn't what allures us. That isn't what draws us. There's something more about that cross that brings us to it. What is it? It's the one that hangs upon it. That's who we want to be with. The reason we go to the cross is because of a person We're not attracted to the pain and the difficulty. We're attracted to the person. And we'll go through whatever it takes to gain that. That man that hung upon the cross, I'll sacrifice everything to get him. The invitation to the cross. Men wanted for hazardous journey to Calvary's cross. Death to self, relinquishment of all control, utter humbling of the inner man are prerequisites to the journey. 
Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. Rejection from society, certain. Listen to this last line. Benefits too great to calculate. You see, most of us get stuck. Well, we do a couple things. Christianity, for most of us, we've grown up in a Christianity that removes the entire top half of that. And all it talks about is benefits. It talks about you can feel better. You can have more peace in your life. You can do this. That's why you come to Jesus. No, coming to Jesus means the top half. However, when we're coming to Jesus, we must understand who he is. What he has accomplished on that cross. And when we know it, I tell you what, the first half of that just completely fades into oblivion. We don't care. I don't care what's on the top half of that. And people can say, did you read that? Yeah, I read it. But did you read the last line? I get Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Have you beheld the living God? Because when you've seen him, there's nothing that can talk you out of your givenness to him. We use the illustration here at Ellerslie a lot of these curtains. On the other side of these curtains is a lake. And on the other side of this lake is a mountain view. It's beautiful. When the sun is going down, it's just beautiful. And so imagine that I took a peek. I I went over there and I said, I'll I'll take a peek for you guys. And I go over and I take a peek out and I go, oh, it's beautiful. Wow, it's beautiful. And I describe it. It's like this scarlet crimson hue, a little orange over here, a little purplish color over here. The mountains are jagged like this. And you're like, oh, wow, it must be beautiful. And I go, let's sing a song. You know how hard it is to borrow my experience and my sight for your song? You see, the way you sing a song is you have to see it for yourself. What we're needing in Christianity is literally to have these curtains burst open. The glory of God made manifest to each of our souls. I don't blame you for having a tough time in your walk with God if you've been borrowing someone else's description of Jesus Christ. I don't blame you. It's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to behold Jesus yourself. And if you haven't beheld Jesus yourself, ask, beg, hold on to him and say, I will not let go until I do. That's all that matters to me. I've seen the cross. I've seen the empty tomb. I've seen the resurrected, ascended Christ who sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. I've seen the outpoured life of his spirit that infills his believers and enables them to live what otherwise would be an impossible life. You can't talk me out of it. Any more than you can talk me out of the fact that I have a wife and four kids, which is actually now six kids. You can't talk me out of it. Why? Because it's fact to my soul. I know these things. The question is, do you? Because the first half of that list scares most of us away. However, when you've seen it, it gets me excited. It's like I get to share in a fellowship of his sufferings. Praise God to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I perish, I perish. There is something that changes within a man or a woman of God when they behold the cross. Don't just get near the cross. You must behold it. It's like being near a plane instead of being in a plane. When the plane takes off, you don't get any benefit from that plane if you're near it. But when you're in it, when you're intimately in it, it changes everything. Knowing the cost. And so let's be frank here. This is what the Bible says, there is a cost. And Jesus himself goes out of his way to say, you better know that cost. He's saying, I don't want you to just make bold statements heavenward. You must know what you're talking about. Do you understand what it means to follow the living God? I don't know that most of us really do. And so Jesus goes out of his way to give us this little piece. Luke 14. 
If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Or what king, going to make war against another king, sits not down first and consults whether he be able to, with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. I'm going to read that last line again because most of us have heard it our entire life. However, there's a statement of condition in this line. And by the way, this is the revealed word of God and it is fact. And I spent time this week pondering that line, and I was asking myself, have I relinquished all I have? Because that's what it says. It says, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Do you really want to follow this Jesus? Do you really want to go where he goes? Do you really want to go to the cave and have a rock for your pillow? Do you really want to go to that cross? you know what they do to men on crosses? I'm not exactly sure. No one ever told me that. Have you seen Jesus? Because that solves the riddle. Knowing the benefit. A lot of times, you know, I, I would get blamed. It's not necessarily bad, but Eric is trying to bring back a clear understanding of the cost of discipleship in our generation. Bring back the true realities of what it means to lay down your life, what it means to be dethroned from the position of control in your life and allow Jesus Christ to rule and reign. However, there's another side to it that oftentimes gets lost in the mix, and I hope I've never shortchanged anyone on this, but it's truly why we are building in the first place. It's why we are going to the cave, why we are going to the cross. It's not just raw duty, where God says, go to the cross, and we're like, oh boy, this is miserable, but God said it, I have no choice. Paris Reedhead makes a comment in his famous sermon, Ten Shekels and a Shirt, and he basically makes the appeal saying, for the glory of God, we should come to Jesus Christ, even if we went to hell in the end, because the glory of God demands it. God is God, and his position in the heavenlies would demand that even if you went to hell in the end, you should obey and yield and give up your life. Now, I think it's a great statement. It's a statement of fact, what he's saying. However, that's also not true of what is required of us. In other words, our God has come to rescue us. He has given us an ability to escape from the wrath to come. He has given us a means of getting out of the fire. And so to show glory to our God... We respond and enter into his enfolding embrace of rescue. That's how we show honor to Jesus Christ. We show honor by taking advantage and by responding to his great cross work and what he has accomplished. And by doing it, we enter into his inheritance. And though this may be construed as selfishness, when I go through this list to say, look at the benefits of the cross. And you can say, I don't want to focus on the benefits. I just want to be ready and willing to do whatever God asks. I don't want to do it for the wrong motives. You know that Jesus is the one that has made these things clear in his word, that this is what I've given you. 
take it. You honor Jesus Christ by taking the purchase of the cross. So if we want to bring glory to Jesus Christ, we must know the benefit, and we must go after that benefit. And you know, it's sort of funny, because it's a funny twist to say that it's selfish on a Christian's part to go after the benefit. Because what do they have to do to go after the benefit? They have to die to self. They have to relinquish all control over their life. They have to be willing to die. So it's sort of funny to call that selfishness. It's the ultimate act of unselfishness. Because you are relinquishing self. You are denying self its rightful position and giving Jesus the rightful access that he deserves to the throne of your life. So we just need to make sure we understand truly what selfishness is and what unselfishness is. So here's my quote from earlier. Benefits too great to calculate. I think that's an accurate statement. I don't know that I could accurately describe for you truly the benefit of the cross. The benefit of the blood of Christ. It is so far beyond anything my mind can even wrap itself around. However, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out for you the benefit. Now, this will be a kindergartner's ability to do it because I can only share with you what I know. And there's so much more that I will know in the future that I can't just impart now. So it's like a kindergartner attempting to describe the vastness of the universe. But it's still good for the kindergartner to do it and to give you what I do know in Scripture. I gave a message, and if you want to have a full-orbed understanding of what I'm going to go through, it's a message called In Christ. And when I was going through the message In Christ, I, was actually, I went through what's called the 66 wills of Scripture. The benefits that come to the believers when they are in Christ. And so this is a study of being in Christ. The other word in Scripture that you could study is in Him. And then the other one is in whom. When you study in Christ, in Him, and in whom, you come up with this list. And it is a potent list. It's interesting because it's 66 things. Which is an odd number and not the number we would typically want to end on. However, that's the amount of canonized books in the Bible. I always thought that was an unusual number for God to end on too. 66. Why in the world did you pick that number? Well, that's sort of an interesting parallel here. We have 66. The invite to the cross is an invite in to Christ. Everything about your spiritual life is about location. Spiritual location. At Ellerslie, I would say, what's your position? Or what's your location? And the answer is in Christ. It's a statement of fact. I am in Christ. Because you don't want to just be near Christ. You don't want to be on top of Christ. You want to be in Christ. The same way you don't want to be near a plane. You don't want to be on top of a plane. If you want flight, you have to be in the plane. And that might sound like a petty you know, nuance. It's everything in the gospel. Everything. Because Jesus is clothing. In Isaiah 61, he's described as the garments of salvation or the robe of righteousness. You must be covered. You must be enclosed in something. He's known as a strong tower. If you are outside of the tower, you could esteem the tower, sing songs about the tower. However, when an arrow is shot at your rear end, it's going to hit it. You can't just hug a tower and gain the merits and the benefit of the tower. You must be in the tower to gain the benefits of it. In is everything. And so as Christians, we don't stand near the clothing of Christ and esteem it. We don't stand on top of it. Just because our feet are touching it doesn't mean we're gaining the benefit of that clothing. When you're naked, you need to be in the clothing. All of us know these things in real life. But in scriptural understanding, we must understand it's the exact same thing. 
Noah's ark was open. The door was open. And it was open until the rain began. The same is a, it's the exact same truth that is a, in, in regards to Jesus Christ. The door is open. And until the wrath is poured out and the rain begins, that door is open for us to enter. And if you even have a desire to enter into that ark, that is the passport right there. It's the grace of God that has moved upon your soul to awaken you to say, I want in. If you want in, get in. There is nothing that hinders you if you say, but I'm not clean. I'm not washed yet. I need to fix something in me. The only way to be fixed is in him. Forgiveness of sins is found in Christ. So you have to come into Christ, and that's where the forgiveness is found. Redemption is found in the blood of Jesus. In. You must be in Christ to be cleaned. You cannot clean yourself outside of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to the Father, and that's in Christ. So, the invite to the cross is an invite in to Christ. Now, remember that list I showed you earlier? It's like there's a door open. And you can come into Christ. But do you know what happens when you come into Christ? You're now identified with him. And the arrows that are aimed at him are now aimed at you. Everything the world designs to destroy him is now aimed at you. Where are you found? You're in him. So as a result, when they hate him, they're hating you. In other words, all the wrath of this age in which we live, their anger, their, their frustration, their embitterment, towards the saints of God, towards Jesus, is now aimed towards you. Are you sure you want this? That's what it means to be in Christ. You get all the benefits of being in Christ, but you need to understand and count the cost of what you're getting yourself into here. So the study, if you want to do it later, in Christ, in him, in whom. It's a great study. 66 reasons to give up our lives and to enter into Christ. I tell you what, just one of these things on this list would be enough And there's 66 of them. 66. And this is such an overwhelming list, you will have to literally spend the rest of your life studying this list. This is literally what the Bible itself says in regards to the blood of Christ, what the blood of Christ offers. And the blood of Christ is our clothing. It is the life of Christ. Blood in the Hebrew culture was life. And the life of Christ has been made available to us to clothe us. That's what the robe of righteousness is. And yet, also, if you study in Christ, if you study in him, or you study in whom? Number one, all our sin will be atoned for. His blood will prove a propitiation, a just and satisfying offering in our stead. We will be justified. We will be forgiven our every sin. Where is this found? This is found in Christ. Now remember what we were doing just a few minutes ago when we're hearing about the difficulties of what it means to go to the cross. The invitation to the cross. Oh, that sounds so dangerous. It sounds so formidable. I I don't want that sort of life. There's no comfort in that. What are you finding? When you leave the pleasures of this world, what are you finding? You're finding the fullness of God. Everything that your soul is actually craving is met in Christ, not in this world. That's a counterfeit out there. They're duping you with a a piece of fruit. And they're attempting to get you to find satisfaction in something outside of what God has designed you to find satisfaction in, which is in himself. God has actually built you for pleasure. It's a strange statement, I know. But not the world's pleasure. 
for pleasure in him. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it says. Where does Jesus sit? At the right hand of the Father. And where are you? In him. Where is he? At the right hand of the Father. So where are we? It says in Ephesians 2 that we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. We are at the right hand of the Father where it says there are pleasures forevermore. I tell you what, you've been scrounging around in the the junk heaps to find the pleasures of this world when you have them in Christ Jesus. Let's get our focus straight off of this world and onto Jesus. Number five, our sins will be removed from us. We will be cleansed and washed from all our sin. Our consciences will be purged. These are guarantees. This comes with the house. I always liken Christ to the lake house next door. And if you're standing outside, you're being pelted with sleet and snow, and it's frigid cold outside. Colorado can get cold at times. And yet there's a note on the door that says, please come in, Eric. The door is open for you. I left it open for you. Please come in and enjoy the temperature-controlled air. Please come in. I have a refrigerator stocked with goodies for you so you can eat. And I'm hungry. You know how ridiculous it would be for me to hug the outside of the building? And say, I just thank you so much for the invitation. How do I show honor to the host that has invited me in? I come in. Now, wouldn't it be weird if I came in and I got into the coat closet because I felt so awkward being in this house? I mean, I'm not worthy to be in this house, which is a definite fact. I'm not worthy to be in Christ. I have not done anything to whip up worthiness to be in Christ. And so what do I do? I cower when I come in, and I go into the coat closet and I hide because I know as long as I'm in this house, I get to go to heaven. And so maybe if he doesn't find me out and I can just hide away in the darkness here in the house... Then I can just make it to heaven and everything will be fine. And so most of us fritter our life away in the house, but in the coat closet of the house. Meanwhile, the entire house has been made available to us. We've just never been told. And so Christianity, discipleship, you know what it is in a nutshell? It's opening the door to someone's little closet, reaching in and saying, look, Jesus made all this available to you. Let me take you on a tour. This is what this is. This is a tour of all that is available to you in Christ Jesus. Who in the world wouldn't want this? In my opinion, the gospel is the most reasonable and logical thing on earth. To me, I stare at it and I'm thinking, who wouldn't want to give up their life for that? To me, it's rational even. It's not some weird feeling thing where I need to deny reality and just sort of choose to some idiotic maneuver. I actually believe that my decision to follow Christ is the wisest most pure-minded, most brilliant thing a human could ever do. We will be cleansed and washed from all sin. Our consciences will be purged. You sick and tired of that guilt, that condemnation that presses upon your soul? Even though you've come to Jesus and you said, look, I'm sorry I did that, and you know he forgives technically, but the enemy's still hounding you? You know what comes in Christ? Your conscience will be purged. No longer will there be that thing that the enemy can press upon. We will have peace with God. We will be reconciled unto Christ. He will be our righteousness. We will be saved from the wrath to come. The devil will be destroyed and rendered impotent against us. We will overcome the devil. We will be redeemed, eternally redeemed, our very beings purchased by God. We will receive life within, eternal life. We will be brought back to life from the dead. 
We will be sanctified and made holy. We'll be spiritually and physically healed. We'll have boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. We'll be enabled to make our daily, hourly, minute-by-minute home in Christ Jesus. We're at number 20. And I tell you what, we could close this message right here and say, any questions? Who wouldn't desire to be in Christ? But we live in a world that loves darkness and hates the light. They don't want Christ even though he would change them and save them. They don't want to be saved. But if you're in here and you want to be saved, I guarantee you I know what's going on inside of you. God's saving you. He's in the process of awakening you and he's saying, I want you. This invitation is for you. Come in. Come in and share in my bounty. Come in and let me alter you. Holy alter you. Now, when you come into Christ, it's called repentance. You are turning from a previous manner of living, which is called in Adam, in the flesh, which is you on the throne of your existence. And as a result, there's another power in your life known as the old man of the flesh that is actually manipulating and controlling your body. You want to do things, but you can't do them. You want to live pure, maybe. You want to be nice and always speak pleasant words, but you can't. Something's controlling you. It's called the principle of sin. Because you have seated yourself on the throne of your life, and that throne is only meant to be seated on by Jesus Christ. This is his place, and you have usurped it. And as a result, you have given another power control over your body. Jesus comes in and frees you from your position of rebellion. He sets you free to deny yourself, which you couldn't even do that. You couldn't even get off the throne. And now he's given you access. He's silenced the voice of the flesh. He's removed that power from your being. And he's allowed you to come down off of that throne so that he can sit upon it. And when Jesus sits upon that throne, do you know that he gives you power to then rule your body properly? You now have the position in your body to tell your sexuality, your sleep, your appetite, that they are not going to dominate you. Jesus is going to dominate them. It changes everything in the Christian life. Everything. If you have a yearning to be set free from your entrapment to sin, where does that yearning come from? It's a gift of grace. God is awakening you from your stupor, from your darkness, and you are seeing something. Enter into Jesus Christ. Show him honor by agreeing and saying, Yes, Lord, you are not worthy. Don't try and reason through and say, But why would he want me? I don't know why he wants me either. It doesn't make any sense why he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I can't explain that. Why he would love us. Why he's condescended to give up his life for us is beyond comprehension. However, he did. And he is after us. And he does love us. And is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. We will bear much fruit. We will be made alive to God. There will be no more condemnation hanging over our lives. We will be made free from the law of sin and death. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. We will have access to the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, and the redemption of God. All the promises of God will be yes and amen to us. Our spiritual lives will be established and anointed. We will be led forth in triumph. He will diffuse through our lives the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. The veil that shrouds our spiritual sight will be taken away. We will become new creations. All things will become new. The complexities of life will be made simple. 
We're halfway through the list. Now, you were saying, what was your justification of why it wasn't reasonable to give up your life to Jesus Christ? As far as I'm concerned, it's the thinking man's decision. I know that's not how we function, because if it was that easy, we could just go out and reason people into the kingdom. You can't reason anyone into the kingdom. I cannot change someone's mind about Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. However, I can bear the truth, and God asks me to. And he will leverage my words as a tool. He will combine my tools with his work of grace. And as a result, preaching will actually stir a soul that has been dead. He uses the foolishness. This is what it says in Scripture. He'll use the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching. In other words, he calls what I'm doing foolishness. I accept it. (laughs) Number 34. We will from henceforth live by the power of God. We will have an astounding liberty to now, to now do that which is right. We will become sons of God. We will be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We will be chosen to be holy and without blame. We will obtain an inheritance. We will be made to sit with him in heavenly places. We will be made to know the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. We will have works prepared before us to walk in. We will be brought intimately near into his very presence and we will have boldness and confidence in our approach unto his throne. We will become the very temple of the Lord, the very dwelling place of God. You could stop on any one of these and preach an entire message, maybe for a week-long series, every day, all day long. The riches of the inheritance are beyond comprehension. We, the Gentiles, will become fellow heirs and partakers of the promise. We will have power to rejoice. You ever wanted to have more rejoicing in your life, get in Christ. In Christ, you have power to rejoice. It's like a whole room, like a little mechanical closet in there, and it has like this machine that you're able to walk in and rejoice. It's like you're leaping all over the place. Everything that is needed to rejoice, there's power in Christ to do it. We will have a prize set before us of the upward call of God. We will have access into all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God? What complaint could possibly offset this? We will be clothed in his perfection. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge will be made available to us. We will abound in thanksgiving. We will be made complete. We will be circumcised in the sins of the flesh. We will have the promise of life. We will be given a holy calling. We will be supplied an empowering grace. We will have faith and love. We will have salvation. There will be no more darkness. The love of God will be perfected in us. We will not be ashamed before him at his coming. We will purify ourselves just as he is pure. We will not sin. Anything we ask according to his will, he will hear us. We will know him. Now, this last one, I've kept the mystery in it because I'm going to come back to it. I did this in in the message in Christ too. We will know his great mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations. You know what the Bible actually reveals what the great mystery is? It's been hidden for ages and generations, but it says in Colossians it's now been revealed. So I'm going to leave you hanging on that one. Because it's not just good, it's outrageous. It is beyond any human descriptive term. The English language stinks when trying to describe just 66 on here. It is out of control good. It's just like on the loose doing good and you can't even comprehend it and fathom it. Wow! And I'm going to leave it as as that for a second. The great mystery hidden for ages and generations. But you have it in Christ, by the way. 
And so even if I never told you what it was, it should intrigue you enough to say, I'm getting in Christ. I have to know 66. I should try that. I should just stop the message right now and just see how many of you respond correctly. <laughs> what leads a man to live in a cave? Listen to the byline of this or the sub-theme uh, in this. It's not the cave. It's the beloved one who lives in the cave. You see, I'm not naturally attracted to live in a cave. Now, that boyish side of me when I'm growing up would love to explore caves. And maybe I should say that if I were to think it through, actually living in a cave sounds sort of fun. If you could, like, build stuff into the wall. You know, like those, if you've ever seen one of those movies where they actually carve out caves and they have a whole dwelling place in there, that's actually sort of intriguing. So maybe I actually have more fascination with living in a cave than I would know. But the concept of having a rock for a pillow, not that it's naturally appealing to me. I, when I go camping, have you ever been camping you have a rock? you know, underneath your back, and you're trying to get comfortable all night long, and everyone else is sleeping, so it's not like you can lift up the tent and remove the rock. You're just sort of stuck there with a rock. And you picked your spot poorly, and you forgot your mat to roll out on, and so as a result, you're just miserable. Well, that doesn't intrigue me for a lifetime. I don't want to live on a rock. I don't want to sleep with a rock for my pillow. There's nothing in me that's attracted to that. However, why would someone like me say, I'm in? Why would I choose to go live in a cave? It's not the cave. It's the one in the cave. I've thought about this many times. Could you imagine? David's name means beloved. He was beloved by his men. His men would do anything for him. He demonstrated a magnetism, which is the same thing Jesus has. Jesus is our beloved. We don't just serve him out of duty and because it's right. We serve him because we love him. And so, could you imagine if you had the privilege of transporting back in time to the time of the mighties and God gave you a map? Oh, how about this? This is even a better story. This could be a good movie. David sends an invitation to you into the future and gives you a time travel device. And the invitation says, come join me in the cave. And we're like... King David sent me a personal invite to go join him in the cave. I don't know about you. I'm going. That is exciting to me. And so I get in this transportation device, and I shoot back into time. And I end up, and I have a map that was given with the, with the thing, because my tra- uh, time travel device has to end up in some obscure location so that the, uh, the Philistines don't take it, or, you know, Saul and his, man, you know, we need to hide this thing. So, so I show up in a special spot, and I have to, by a map, navigate my way, and it has this, like, X that says cave entrance. I mean, this is fun. And so I am literally deciding to leave my life as I once knew it behind, all things that I've known behind. And I'm willing to risk everything. Do I realize that I am, by going to that cave, I'm literally signing my death certificate. I mean, this it's over for me. Saul is looking to kill me. All the military of Israel. By the way, Israel is a teeniest little nation. And it's smothered with Saul's soldiers. Just one informant is all it takes to destroy David and all his men. One informant in an entire nation. How in the world did this man survive 11 years? It is extraordinary. Well, how do you survive? You're in Christ. In that cave, you know what it's called? The rock. When you're in the cave... You're shielded. There's just no way of explaining it. It's impossible, but Saul can't get you. When you're in Jesus, it's hard to explain, but the enemy can't get you. You're secured in the blood of Christ. It's not the cave. It's the beloved one who lives in the cave. 
You show up at the cave. Could you imagine? David's mighties are waiting there, and they're like, who are you? And I got an invitation from David. And they go, let us see it. They show it to him. Does this look like a forgery? And they're looking at it. They're looking me over going, who is this guy? Scrawny guy? What's this clothing he's wearing? It's like all this funny-looking stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm from the future. They dress like this in the future. And they're looking at me like, it's disgusting. Uh, and so then they're like, I don't know about this guy. And you hear the voice of King David, let him through. And so they're like, well, all right. And you walk in, and you stand before your beloved. You stand before King David himself. Wouldn't that be an amazing moment? You bend your knee. Give him your sword and say, for you, by life or by death, to see you established as the rightful king. Could you imagine what it would be like to have him lift you up and embrace you? And then to have him tell all his other mighties that this is the new mighty in the making. And he might not look like much now, but we'll whip him into shape. And then imagine at night, though your head be on a pillow, imagine having the beloved commander marching around watching over his men. And you awaken in the night and you see your king. And he looks down at you with a fond expression and winks. And he says, go back to sleep. I'm watching for you. And so you can rest the sweetest rest. Though the world wants you dead, you are safe in the cave with your king. And imagine waking up in the morning and he's bent down over you. And he has a big smile on his face. He's like, ready to go hunt some Philistine? Yeah, I am with him. His mighties have a strength that old Eric Ludy just doesn't naturally have. I'm a coward and I'm a whip, but when I'm in his presence, there's a strength. There's a grace. When I'm in that cave, I have something I don't have outside of it. But I'm not attracted to just stone. I'm attracted to Jesus. I'm attracted to my beloved. That's what leads me to give up everything to come into the cave. He is fairer than the children of men, the chiefest among 10,000, the bridegroom, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, a bundle of myrrh, a cluster of henna blooms. Yea, he is altogether lovely. He is my beloved and my friend. Even if heaven were a dark cave, if that is where our fair king lives, then let us go to the cave. You see, heaven isn't a dark cave. It doesn't even need a sun or a moon because God is the light. There is no shadow in it. God is an all-permeating light in heaven. You go to any sock drawer and take a peek inside of it, it's full light. God has permeated every corner. There is no shadow. There is no darkness in him at all. But if heaven were a cave, sign me up. If that's where he is, that's where I want to go. You see, we get something so much better than a cave. But in this natural life that we have on earth, we get a cave. And so God's testing us with a cave. He's saying, are you willing to serve me in the cave now? Are you willing to serve me in this mortal body that is full of so much weakness now? Are you willing to suffer in this mortal body now? To enter into an intimacy with me that you could gain no other way. You see, it's only those that joined David in the cave when he was under persecution that were in his intimate circle when he was the king. He had hundreds of thousands of troops under his command. And yet there were only 37 mighties. Dear Lord Jesus, let us be amongst the 37. Oh, I mean, that's just the language of my soul. With Jesus in the dark cave, 
He gives songs in the night. I'd love to be my head on a rock. I might even be chilled and cold, but could you imagine what it would be like to have David with his harp singing over his men and to actually hear a psalm of David? Okay, I have something better for you. A psalm of Jesus. A psalm of the master musician himself, the one that created music. That he gives us songs in the night. What's the night? It's the dark moments. It's the cave moments. You see, he's called us to difficulty. And yet in that difficulty, he promises us something, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be with us in the midst of that cave. Even better than that, he's not just with us. He's with us with a song. Have you ever known that the great men and women of God that were fed to wild beasts would go out singing songs? The living God was with them with a song, and he gave them songs in the night. And you can say, well, it was broad daylight. It was the night for them, believe me. When all seems to have shut off, and all things are going sour in the natural realm, Jesus is present, and he gives songs in the night. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. In the night, his song shall be with me. Do you have the songs of Jesus with you in your night seasons? I'm not just talking about when you're sleeping. I'm talking about when things are getting difficult. If you're in Christ, you have access to the songs. The entire jukebox of Jesus Christ. Everything you could possibly need is available to you in Christ. Every song in his repertoire, every one of them belongs to you as his child. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. And at midnight, listen to this, this is beautiful. At midnight, so it's the night, Paul and Silas prayed. Where are they? They're in prison. They prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. You know what happens when you get a song in the night? You sing, and who hears? It's all those that are in bondage. They need a song, and you have a song. Jesus gives us his song. The same song of Calvary, we get it, and when we sing, he sings to us. We sing it out, and the prisoners hear. The prisoners hear the song in the night. Yearning for the place of the king. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You could give me all that the tents of wickedness can offer, all the pleasures of this earth. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'll exchange it all in. I want Jesus. I don't want the pleasures of this world. They don't satisfy I'm not interested in what they have to offer. I'm interested in what he has to offer. I want him. So I forsake all the world. I repent of it. I change my mind. The word repent is a concept of turning away from or changing your mind towards. Before we have esteemed what the world has to offer. And we've proved it with our behavior. That's where we spend our energies. We want to gain the things of this world. But we change our mind on that and we say, you know what? I'm going this way. I'm entering into Christ. I'm leaving my life in Adam, in sin, and I'm choosing to follow Jesus Christ. And I recognize what that means. I lose the favor of this world. I lose the things of this world. But I gain the things of heaven, which are far better. 
why would I want this junk out there? I know it's easier said than done. When we start evaluating things, if we were to start breaking this down and say, well, this is what it might cost you. You say, oh, no one told me that. You can say, well, Eric just preached a sermon on it. Yeah, but I didn't know it was actually specific like that. I mean, real discomfort. Okay, if you're missing that point, I'm going to tell you straight up. Real discomfort. It's real. Crosses with splinters in them are real. Peter, the apostle, was crucified upside down on a real splintery cross. It actually happened. God's men face difficulties. But when they face those difficulties, they have Jesus. And they have songs in the night. One of my favorite stories is a story, and actually Micah McConaughey got me the actual write-up of it, but then I haven't been able to find it. It's a pastor, I want to say around the 1500s, that he was turned in, and this is in the days when they burned men at the stake, and the pastor had an illegal gathering, and so he was removed and he was going to be burnt publicly, and basically the threat was to all the rest of the body that you will burn too if you continue meeting. And the pastor asked for a few moments with his congregation before he left. And they were pleading, saying, oh, I don't know that we can lose you, and I don't know that we can follow. We don't have the same strength that you have. And he said, to prove to you that Jesus is with you in the midst of the flames. When the ropes burn through tomorrow when they burn me, I will raise my hand amidst the flames to show you that Jesus' grace is sufficient. Okay, now, this is... An incredible scene. You need a background Steve Rosen score behind it. (laughs) But usually when you are being burned at the stake, you pass out rather quickly because of the extreme pain. This man doesn't pass out, but he has to wait for the ropes to completely burn through. And when they burn through, could you imagine the moment to see a hand amidst the flames? Jesus is with me. There is a song in the night. Wow. I serve Jesus. I serve the God that never leaves nor forsakes. And though it gets difficult and though the, 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 the ground is rough, I have Jesus. I don't care about the rough ground. I have Jesus. I don't care about the stake. I have Jesus. I don't care about the cross and the splinters. I have Jesus. I don't care that my head is on a rock. I have Jesus. Do you have Jesus? See, when you have Jesus, these other things fade. Who cares about that? Have you ever met my Jesus? Our place is his place. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. You know that he did? The Lord condescended and came from his place, the heavenly place. It says, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. In other words, he's going to destroy all the powers that be in this earth. He will tread upon them. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Our God came to the cave. Our God left his high and holy and bright lighted hill and came to our darkened environment, to the cave. And then he says, come to me. Amidst the cave. He doesn't just say, come to heaven. And we like somehow are transported the moment we pray away from this dark hole down here to the bright and holy hill. Instead, he says, come to the cave and we will make you men and women of God. We must be trained in the cave. We must be trained. This is the first test of the soul. Are we willing to meet him there? But we must know he has come to Adullam. He is there. 
He is in the cave with us. His place is our place. So our place has become his place. This world has become his place. He's come. And he hasn't departed. Though he's ascended, he sent forth his spirit. And the comforter is with us. And we have the very spirit and life of Jesus here. To live is Christ. However, to die is gain. Our place has become his place. But his place is our place. Even when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, your physical body is down here. His physical body is up there. However, his spiritual man is here inside of you. Your spiritual man is there inside of him. It's a funny thing to try and explain, Christianity. But that's the truth. You are preserved and protected. Though your body may be abused, the enemy cannot touch you. For you are seated in heavenly places and you are encompassed in the grand stonework of Jesus Christ. He is known as the shield of faith and it quells all the fiery darts of the evil one. All of them. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. These are facts of the Christian existence. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. It's in the clefts of the rock that we see the beauty of our beloved. So our place is his place. And then his place is our place. And then his life becomes our life. It's a difficult thing. We go through it in vast detail here in our discipleship process at Ellerslie. But we teach how being in Christ works. It's like being in a plane. If a plane is going to Taiwan, where do you go? And if you're on it, you go to Taiwan. You just go where the plane goes. What if it goes to uh, Perth, Australia? That was for you, Matt. You go to Perth, Australia. It's not like you go to to L.A. if the plane is going to Perth. You go where the plane goes. If you get in Christ, you go where he goes. Where's he going? Where's his end destination? His end destination is the right hand of the Father. How do you get to the Father? Well, it says in Scripture there's only one way to the Father. Well, then you better get on that plane. There's only one plane going there, and that's Jesus. But before he came to the Father, you know that he went somewhere else? He went to the cross. And when he went to that cross, if you're in him, you went to the cross. And his death is your death. And it says your old man is crucified with him. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. We cannot kill ourselves. We have a problem called the old man or old behavior, and we cannot get rid of it. We are in covenant with death, and covenant can only be broken through death. And yet, we can't die to ourselves. How do we do this? We enter into his life, and his death becomes our death. And the severing of the covenant is official. Our covenant with death is annulled, and we can now enter into a new covenant in his blood with him. We get on Christ, or we get in Christ. He goes to the cross, we go to the cross. His death, our death. He goes to the burial, we go to the burial. Our old behavior is buried, put under the dirt. Big stone rolled in front of it. The world no longer sees our old behavior. 
But now there's resurrection life, and his resurrection is our resurrection. And now the world can see a new man. It's called new management. Old management out. New management in. Jesus Christ now rules this life. We have the same spirit that raised him from the dead dwelling in us. And then he ascends, and where do we go? We go where the plane's going. And we go to the right hand of the Father. Why is he taking us there? Well, there's multiple reasons. One of the big ones. Because he has something to give us. You see, he brings us to the Father, and he says, ask. Ask the Father. The Father has something that will make your physical body down here work as it's supposed to work. See, you may be clothed in Christ, and you may reach the heavenly place, but you need something to live out this life in this body down here. Jesus has brought you to the Father so that he could get you something. That's what was purchased on the cross. Truth number 66. He has something for you. And believe me, you need it. Reason number 66. We could call this the capstone. If you've ever seen the short film, The Gospel, it all, I wish I could quote it. I've heard it enough times now. Uh, you can wrap all those things into one and it still falls short of the final one. That's this. This is the capstone. This is what it's all about. This is the crowning jewel of the work of the cross. Number 66, we will be given the Spirit, and we will receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, and we'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The very life of Almighty God has been made available to you. But where is it at? It's in the throne room of grace for help in time of need. How do you get to the throne room of grace? There's only one way. You must be in Christ. When you're in Christ, you go to the cross, and his death is your death. You go to the burial. His burial is your burial. You resurrect in him. And you now have newness of life in Christ Jesus. And then he takes you to the right hand of the Father. He is literally taking you to the throne of grace. And he says, ask for help in time of need. You need grace. This is called grace. We have a big misunderstanding of what grace is, thanks to modern renovations of it. Most people think it's a hug of God upon our sinful state. And God sort of overlooks all our sin and says, oh, I love you anyways. Well, God loves us too much to leave us in that state. It's true that God is merciful. It's true that God loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us in that state. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has defeated the power of sin over our life. And now he brings us into the throne room of grace, and he says, I have all you need. Ask. And when we ask, he deposits into us his very life. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. This is how we know that we are in him and he is in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. How? In Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Why does he want us in Christ? So that we can inherit the promise. All of these 66 things are the promises, the exceeding great and precious promises of God that are made available to the saints of God in Christ Jesus. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's an end game that God has. You need something to be able to live out this Christian life. Don't stop short. Ask the Father. It's his great delight to give you his very life.
to live within you and to make your very body his home. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Who's in? This is our challenge. Now, if you've heard me throughout this and didn't fog over, as far as I'm concerned, on the logical level, if we didn't have the flesh-spirit battle and we, you know, earmuffs that the flesh puts upon us, we could just hear this message and rationally just say, absolutely. Why wouldn't I do that? It's just like a good business deal where someone's offering you a million dollars and they say they want your pile of pebbles in return. And you're like, I don't know. My pebbles are really precious to me. Uh, did you hear the deal? That's exactly what I think when I go through this. I'm like, come on. Why are you going to hold on to your life and spend eternity in torment? Instead, you can have Jesus. And someone will literally spit in the face of such a message and say, I don't want Jesus. Outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed, who's in? What would lead a man to gladly leave riches, position, fame, worldly power, and earthly comforts behind? What would cause a man to gladly embrace the disdain, mockery, and revilement of the world for the pleasure of his king? What could possibly motivate a man to gladly suffer, endure hardships, dangers, tortures, and extreme privations for the expansion of his ruler's fame and renown? What would cause a man to smile at the notion of a painful death if it be for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of his master? The love bond, the offering of the ear. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. This is the statement of what's called a bond servant in the Old Testament. A servant, after a certain period of time, could be released and he'd be set free. However, there's something about the master's house that he doesn't want to leave. He might be set free, but guess what? Out of his own volition, which is will, out of his own will, he chooses to return unto his master, though he be a free man, to return unto his master, bend his knee, and say, I will serve you forever because I want to be where you are. I want to be your servant. This is Christianity, by the way. The covenant with death is annulled, and you are literally set free from the power of sin. However, if you go back and sit upon that throne and say, I will live free on my own terms, did you know that the flesh will stroll right back in and you will be under bondage again? You are set free, and then out of your freedom, you make a decision. You say, and I give you what is rightfully yours. And I humble myself and bend my knee, and I will serve you forever. And then you submit the right ear. This is the symbol of hearing in obedience. So whatever the master says, you've said, I've consecrated my ear to you, and whatever you ask, my answer ahead of time is, yes, Lord. This is the pre premeditated, predecided, yes, Lord. Bore my ear through with an all. My answer to you, Lord Jesus. Whatever I read in Scripture from this day forward, my answer is already yes. You know how dangerous that is? Well, how do you know what he's going to ask you to do? I trust his nature. I know my beloved. He would never ask me to do something that he would also not enable me to do by his grace. I can trust him. Yes, Lord. Ahead of time, yes. The beloved shepherd who fights for his sheep against any lion, bear, or giant who dares. He's the beloved. He's the shepherd. The lion, the lion comes in and grabs one of the beloved's flock, and what does the beloved do? 
He runs after him, grabs him by the mane, breaks his jaw, and takes back what is rightfully his. Who is your shepherd? Who is it that you are serving? Who is it that you are coming under into his flock and saying, I want to be near him? The great secret to a sheep isn't the sheep's own strength. It's not that the sheep has a growl. Sheep are weak. They have no power. They have no military strength. I've often said, you take, a, you take one wolf against a million sheep. And you know what? We bet on the wolf. We do. It just takes them a lot longer to get through it and eat them all. But the sheep have no resistance power. They have no ability to stand against a wolf or a lion or a bear or a man beast. David stood up for his sheep against the lion and the bear. And then he stood up for the sheep of Israel against Goliath. That is a picture of our Jesus who stands up for us. And what did his men do? When they saw his sheep were loyal to him and they loved him. His men, his mighty men, they loved him and they would gladly give up their life for him. Do you remember the three mighties? That when they overheard him saying, oh, for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. I mean, all he is is just thinking out loud and his mighties go, let's do it, guys. It's a love mission. The love-bought men, they fight for the king and the king's body. Could you imagine how ridiculous it would be to break through a garrison of Philistines? just to get a cup of cool water. They risked their life literally for the pleasure of their beloved king. Do we know our king in such a way where if we were in the cave, you know what you get when you're in the cave? You get his whispers. You get his intimate longings. And you will hear about the cup of cool water. He wants a cup of cool water. And it's our privilege to be the mighties that go running after it. No matter the natural odds for victory, no matter the dangers to life and limb, no matter the risks to reputation and public esteem, no matter if you are the only one still standing, no matter if the battle just doesn't seem to end, no matter if you are tired and there is little left to fight with, no matter if all those around you claim it's no use to keep on swinging, no matter if you are mocked and ridiculed, no matter if you must go against the entire world system. So why do they do this? Why does anyone do this? Why have Christians throughout the ages lived this way? Why have they thought this way? Well, I guarantee you it wasn't because they liked splinters in their body. It wasn't because they liked rocks for pillows. That isn't what motivated them. The the motive for the Christ-purchased man, you see it down there? I should have made it big. It's for love. Why do we do what we do? It's because we love Jesus Christ. If you don't love Jesus Christ and you just know about Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to grab a hold of your God and say, God, I need to know what he's talking about. I need to know what that means. I don't want to just know details and facts about you. I want to know you. Because if all you have is details and facts, when the testings come and the dark night comes upon your soul, you'll turn and you'll find comfort. You'll find light. You don't want to be in the darkness. You don't want to go after Jesus and hear songs in the night. That just doesn't make any sense. It's just facts to you. As far as concepts, it's not real. I'm really married with real kids. It's not a theory. The same is true with Jesus Christ. He's really my beloved, and I am his. And his banner over me is love. And I want to follow him with my life. I'm weak. I'm a coward, naturally. I can speak big statements. But God wants to grow me up to a big life that matches the things I esteem. And I esteem him. I just want to be like him. I want to make decisions like he makes. I want to love people like he loved. I want to be willing to lay down my life for the week like he did. I want to love my wife the way he loves the church. I want to father my children the way he has fathered me. I don't have the stuff. But in him, he can take me to the throne room of grace. 
for help in time of need, and I have access to all of it. Everything I'm going to need for the incredibly impossible job description that I've received on this earth, I have in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.